Welcome to church. This week, we're continuing our new sermon series titled Counter Culture. Through this series, we'll be exploring perseverance in a hostile culture. Pastor Bev is sharing his message titled, It's Not Pointless. If you're new here, we'd love to get you connected with our community. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or by simply texting hello to 587-323-1199, and we'll respond right back. We're so glad you could join us today. Well, good morning, everyone. Special welcome to our guests today, those who are in person, those who are online. Uh, Welcome to the children as well. Uh, The children, do you have your sheets that you would have been given with the hand? Okay, if you've got those sheets, make sure that you fill in the answers as we go along. Yes, we want to welcome each and every one of you who've joined us today, whether it's for the baptisms, the child dedication, uh, it's inspiring, encouraging to, to hear what God is doing in our midst, in the lives of people who know that they need hope and hope we can, be, can be found through Jesus Christ. This morning, we continue on in our series, Counterculture, Persevering in the Midst of a Hostile Culture. And in particular, this morning's message is entitled, It's Not Pointless. In other words, faith in Jesus Christ is not in vain. As we begin, I want to encourage you to take one point, at least one point from today's presentation and apply that to your life. If you do that, I believe it would have been a time well spent today. Briefly recapping of the previous two sermons by Pastor Doug, who started off our series in 1 Thessalonians, we see a young church, new believers, previously living in the midst of a very pagan and hostile culture, now becoming followers of Jesus and placing their trust in him. And as a result, they were terribly persecuted, but they had a supernatural joy in the midst of that situation and is a credible example for us. Then Pastor Paul spoke of the work of leading people to Jesus Christ and helping them to grow, which is a spiritual struggle with the ultimate goal of helping people to be able to live lives that please God. Now let's listen to today's portion of the Bible reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to chapter 3, verses 9. My wife Mandy will be reading that for us. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters... When we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person and not in thought, out of our intense longing, 
we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did, again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I can stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith, for now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Thank you, Mandy. Now, there's a lot to digest in today's reading, but we're going to focus on two points that are pretty obvious. One is the commitment of the believers in Thessalonica to the word of God, and the other is their commitment to live out that commitment in the midst of a challenging situation of suffering and persecution. So let's start in verse 13 where it says, We also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The Apostle Paul had the audacity to say that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, wasn't just a story from his imagination, but it was the word of God. And as we're reading the word of God now and have read, 2,000 years later, we still believe it to be the word of God. The thing that makes the Bible totally unique is that it was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different people in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. These were extraordinary people, or I should say ordinary people, like you and me, who were inspired by an extraordinary Holy Spirit of God. God has spoken over the ages through all different kinds of people. Moses was a, was a prince of Egypt. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon was a king. Paul was a prisoner. Amos was a farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Luke was a doctor. And Matthew worked for the CRA. Well, actually, he worked for Roman authorities as a tax collector. God spoke in different ways to different people. He thundered his, Mo his message to Moses, 
To Jeremiah, it was like a fire in his bones. And then to Elijah, he spoke in a still, small voice. And God spoke to Daniel through dreams and visions. The Bible is written for all people everywhere, and it is still the best-selling book ever. The latest figure indicate that the full Bible has been translated into about 670 languages, and it has portions of the New Testament translated into over 3,000 languages. And the number keeps changing because every week it seems a new translation is being made available. Amazing. The fact that the Bible is written down by all these ordinary people causes me to truly believe that it is the Word of God. Because imagine if we picked 40 people here in our community and separated them and asked them to write about a controversial topic, do you think they would be in complete agreement? Would those 40 documents have a common theme and subject? I seriously doubt it. And those 40 people would have been living at the same time, in the same language, living in the same culture. But these 40 people who wrote the Bible lived in different times, different cultures, different languages, and yet the Bible has a common theme, which I believe can only be described as miraculous. I do need to point out that while I'm referring to the entire Bible, at the time of the Apostle Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, the primary source of the scriptures for them would have been the Old Testament, plus any things he had said to them and things that had been written down. So with those limitations, one would have to admit that it's amazing how quickly and how strongly these Thessalonian believers committed themselves to this new and wonderful teaching about Jesus Christ. When you are thirsty, you can drink water, and that starts to work in you and relieve your thirst. When you're hungry, you can eat some food, and that food works in you to give nourishment. And when you breathe in, as I'm breathing right now, Oxygen fills your lungs and works to give you energy. But without water, food, or oxygen, we would each soon die. The word of God is even more important. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus said, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is like living water that quenches your spiritual soul. It, it takes that thirst and makes it complete. Just like bread nourishes your soul, and life ox oxygen inspires you as well. Now, years ago, there was a study called Master Life, and it had a presentation called God's Word in Heart and Hand. It was a simple memory tool used to, to help people understand how to grasp God's Word literally and spiritually. Now, for your children, you'll want to pay attention because this is very much on the sheet that you have. The Bible also tells us that Jesus, Jesus has said that we have to be careful because Satan wants to steal the word from our hearts. He wants to remove God's truth from our lives. And here's a simple way to remember how to handle the word of God. Your thumb represents hearing the word of God. If you only hear the word of God, maybe on a Sunday morning, while it's good, it's hard to retain. It would be like trying to hold this Bible with your thumb. You just couldn't do it. Now, the forefinger stands for reading the Bible for yourself. When you do that, you have a better grasp of, your, of the word, but it can still easily be removed. The next finger stands for studying the word of God. When you study the word of God, that means that you look at a, passion or pass, a passage or portion of the Bible, and you look at it over and over, asking yourself, what does it mean? 
Now, now you have a grasp, but it can still be pulled away from you. The next finger stands for memorizing God's word. How much of God's word have you memorized? King David said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you hear, read, study, and memorize God's word, you have a good grasp of it. But the last finger stands for meditating on God's word. That's when you consider over and over again what God is saying. I can hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate on the Bible, but if I only have my fingertips on it, it can still be snatched away. It's only when I move it to the palm of my hand and apply God's word to my life. That's when you ask yourself, so what does this mean for me, and how do I apply it to my life? To what extent is God's word working in your life? Do you regularly commit to reading, to studying, to memorizing, to meditating, and most importantly, applying God's word to your life? If so, that's great. If not, why not? Why not decide to do something even starting tomorrow morning? And if you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have Bibles available for you. And if I may add, a real benefit and every so often, is reading or listening to a different version of the Bible. About a year or so ago, I became aware of something known as the First Nations version of the New Testament, which is written by Indigenous people for Indigenous people and for others who would like to understand their culture and better relate to them. In it, I discovered many beautiful descriptions of words that are commonly used in other versions of the Bible. For example, in the First Nations version, the word heaven is referred to as a beautiful garden. Sin is referred to as a bad heart and broken ways. And Jesus is referred to as creator sets free. These are powerful descriptions of spiritual realities. And here in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 of the First Nations Version, it says this. The great spirit loves the world of human beings so deeply he gave us his son, the only son who fully represents him. All who trust in him and his way will not come to a bad end, but will have the life of the world to come that never fades, full of beauty and harmony. Creator did not send his son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. God's, God's word in this version of the New Testament has had a significant impact in my life. And it's having a significant impact in the life of indigenous, Métis, and Inuit people as this word speaks into their hearts. Even the, as I have opportunity to interact with people from these cultures, they read but a portion. And the word I so often hear is, it speaks to my heart. Yes, we need to remember that the Word of God is a powerful source to transform lives. I'm thinking back a number of years ago, a pastor was sent uh, to, um, to Columbia, South America, and this person by the name of Dr. Julius Hickerson was sent to train pastors so that they could take the Word of God to the peoples of that nation. What had happened, though, was unfortunate, and on the way there, his plane crashed and he perished. Now, we would think that's the end of the story, but that's not the case. 
What happened was, a, a period of time later, a number of indigenous people from that area where the plane crashed came, and they said, we want you to know that we have become followers of Jesus. Now, no missionaries had been sent to that part of Colombia, but they said, we found a book that had come down from heaven and had the name of a Dr. Julius Nickerson, Nickerson, I should say. And so they, only having the Bible itself, and what had happened is one of those people happened to actually speak Spanish. So he was able to translate and share with them what that Bible said. And in doing so, many of people in many of those villages become followers of Jesus. And isn't that amazing that the Bible itself read and understood and applied resulted in the transformation of hundreds, if not thousands, of these people. This is indeed wonderful good news. And that's what happened to the people of Thessalonica as well, as they heard God's word, they believed it, they trusted it, and their lives were, were transformed as they experienced this good news, which wasn't good news to everyone else, though, because throughout history and in every generation, Christians have known persecution and opposition, and even martyrdom. It is commonly reported that more Christians have died in the past century than any of the centuries previous to that. And even regularly, I receive reports of which I pray for, for people in various parts of the world, those who have become followers of Jesus, who are suffering for their faith, who have made a choice to follow Jesus. And every November, we have a special Sunday set aside called the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, where we remember brothers and sisters around the world who have chosen to pay the price to follow Jesus. So why is there often violent opposition to God's word? I believe the answer is simple and yet profound. Now, you may have heard of the singer long ago, Frank Sinatra. How many of you have heard of him before? Now, he had a very famous song, among many others. Do you know what the name of that song is? I did it my way. And you know, we all inherently have a disposition to want to do it our way, on our own terms. And when that doesn't happen, it leads to discrimination, indifference, apathy, aggression, whatever it might be, which we experience to some degree here in Canada. But for others who hold an antagonistic worldview or religion that is deeply entrenched and, and, and against other viewpoints, it often leads to not only discrimination, but to intolerance, oppression, and persecution to various degrees, even violence that is experienced all too often today by Christians in Africa, the Middle East, and other parts of the world. Now, while persecution happens in many parts of the world and comes from outside of the church, it also unfortunately comes from within the church as well. And I would like to invite my wife Mandy to speak to us about that kind of persecution, which, which unfortunately incurs all too often, and how we can respond to that and other trials in our lives. As I share some principles on these verses on how to journey through times of persecution, suffering, and trials, I want you to understand that this unfortunately has been part of our Christian experience, and that of many of you and others as well. In a previous church a number of years ago, 
Bev and I had to deal with sexual abuse by a leader. It was a grueling experience. This was many years ago, and the denomination at that time had no policies in place as to how to address the matter, and even sided with the man who had committed the abuse. Our church elders and Bev consulted with counselors as to how to work through the situation. But family and friends attacked our church leadership for wanting to address the abuse. These were the family and friends of the man who committed the abuse. And they minimized the pain of the survivors. There were attempts to silence the survivors as well. You may wonder why I say the man who committed the abuse instead of the abuser. It's because I believe by God's grace we can be forgiven and change if we choose to be cleansed from our bad hearts and broken ways. So I do not want to label someone. For by God's grace we can all change. And praise God we can move from being victims to survivors. Sadly, if the church had followed the advice given by the counselors, they would have saved themselves a lot of pain in the ensuing years. In the end, Bev and the Board of Elders resigned. However, the survivors feeling unheard later took the matter to court with the man who committed the abuse receiving jail time and the church enduring tremendous pressure. Sometime later, a leader in the denomination contacted us to apologize for how we had been treated. He wondered how our children were doing. Thankfully, we were able to encourage him that we had continued in pastoring and God's grace had extended to our children, keeping them well. Quite often in our life, We can find ourselves facing trials of many kinds that purify our hearts if we allow them to do so. And then we grow in maturity because suffering is not pointless. Even though this is my story, we all face hardships in many different ways. And these points I'm going to share are not a one-time solution but rather an important continual practice. As we look at this passage that Paul wrote, let us recall Paul wanting to go to Rome and Christians saying, no, don't go to Rome, you'll die there. And Paul replied, it doesn't matter what happens to me as long as the kingdom of God grows. Is that our attitude Or are we wanting to play it safe and save ourselves? In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, the apostle states that he was concerned that no one would be unsettled by these trials. They knew quite well they were destined for them. And in verse 4, he tells them that they would be persecuted. This brings us to the need for acceptance in our suffering and trials. It is important to note that acknowledging that something has happened 
is different to accepting it. To begin the journey through suffering, we have to acknowledge it is happening. In Thessalonians 2 verse 14, Paul said, You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. If we disconnect or dissociate from the pain, we bottle it up inside and it can lead to all sorts of emotional turmoil, mental and physical health issues. First responders to accidents are taught to acknowledge someone's emotions and experiences as brain imaging has confirmed that it calms the individual experiencing trauma. Statements like, this is painful, you have suffered, or this is upsetting can help yourself or someone else be grounded. It helps you or another to realize this is truly, really happening. And it is a relief to have that acknowledgement because that means we are not just imagining things. Without an acknowledgement of someone's present suffering and feelings, pride builds walls around vulnerability and discomfort. Humility acknowledges vulnerability and discomfort. No acknowledgement is damaging. Sometimes we hurry through the process of acknowledgement because it is uncomfortable for us and it really is about us wanting to feel better rather than the other, to feel the other person's need. In Romans 5, verse 3 to 5, Paul tells us to accept trials and suffering because they refine our faith and produce confident hope of salvation. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us to develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Romans 5 verse 3 to 5. It was a shock to experience the internal persecution in that previous church. We had to, however, acknowledge it was happening, and then we had to accept it. I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Acknowledgement is hard, but acceptance is even more difficult. We can journey into acceptance because we live in a fallen, sinful world and we know that God does not justify persecution or evil, but it, he does redeem it if we allow him to do so. He brings gems out of darkness and all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. When we accept that we have been wounded, we can invite God's healing and redeeming Holy Spirit to lead us through the valley. We can rest instead of fighting it. This is a place of surrender, where we can journey in quietness and trust, experiencing replenishing strength. The place of acceptance can be a holy and sacred place 
In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus journeyed into the place of acceptance. He cried out to God, please remove this cup, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Surrendering to God often takes tremendous faith. Accepting something takes tremendous faith. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says, When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So we move on to the third point. The first was to acknowledge. The second to accept. The third is to keep sight of the big picture. Paul was worried they'd lost the big picture. He was worried they'd lost their faith. When we endure trials and suffering, our faith helps us to maintain the big picture of our journey. God is still on the throne. Amen. He is still at work in us to accomplish his purpose. It is not pointless, but a part of something bigger. As many discover as they work through Freedom Session. So we press on towards the big picture, our high calling in Jesus to love him and to love others. And knowing that our earthly experience is a small piece of the puzzle, of a larger puzzle of his kingdom. This is where we begin to look for God's brush strokes in our lives. He's working in our suffering. This is often the part that is amazing. We see in us a capacity for more empathy, for more reliance and dependence on God, an awareness of our own human weakness and limitations, yet experiencing his grace and his strength. If we stay big picture people, our faith will grow. But if we become bogged down in the narrow margins of our own experience alone, we can become bitter, selfish, and harsh. After the experience of our previous church, I did not want to journey on in ministry. I sadly thought it would be suicidal. I was terrified. I was stuck in the margins of my own experience. However, I stopped, thankfully, and asked God about the big picture. And he said to me, Mandy, it is important that you and Bev carry on in ministry. The stakes are really high. And they were high. Thankfully, so many lives, including our own hearts, have been impacted positively because we carried on. And two of our three children are in ministry now. Things that we would never have known or foreseen if we had bowed out. However, I had to lean on his understanding and not my own. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, Paul says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Paul is encouraging them. 
because he reminds them of the good memories they had together. He also tells them he finds them encouraging. And by the way, weren't the baptisms this morning encouraging? Yeah, praise to God, hey? When we endure hardships, we need to encourage one another by remembering what God has done for us, remembering our good memories and also how God is still at work in our lives. Bev and I remembered God's faithfulness to us in the past after we went through that difficult experience. We recall that before that, Bev was able to finish graduate school debt-free. He had started to heal from his own childhood abuse, and in between churches, God provided employment. He was helping us learn, mature, and grow because of the experience. It definitely was not pointless. And this encouraged us and kept us on track by God's grace to keep going, encourage one another, look for ways to do this. It is a way we can help one another to be successful in our journey with God. And then in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 9, Paul says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Practice thanksgiving. That's a great, great secret. It will refresh your soul with appreciation and it will keep you from bitterness. It is a choice and not a feeling. Thanksgiving is a humble acknowledgement that we have more than we deserve. Since the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as I dealt with my own abuse, I said to God, this is too ugly. I was so mad. Don't you do anything good with it. And I could sense him saying with a smile, Mandy, you do not see the big picture, the kingdom of God. And now as I've journeyed on, I'm so thankful that he has redeemed it and given me beauty for ashes. Thanksgiving prepares the way for the sweet healing oil of the Holy Spirit. Today, is there some experience you need to acknowledge, you need to accept, you need to place in God's big picture to encourage yourself and others in and to give thanks to God for his faithfulness before and during and after this experience? Thank you. Yes, thank you, Mandy. Just a second here, I'll move on to my portion again. So in the portions of scripture that we've looked at today, and at the end of 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, it says, what, for what is our hope and our joy, or a crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and crown. And similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. 
How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? As Paul concludes uh, the Thessalonians, he speaks of the accomplishments of his life. But he does more than just think of his accomplishments. He thinks of what God has done in him and through him. I suspect on the day of when Apostle Paul stands before God, and I think he will be, so to speak, proud of in a positive way, of the people that his life has impacted for good. He will be encouraged and excited to discover how many people's lives were changed because of decisions that he made. Will that be the same for you and me? When we stand before God one day, what will be our greatest treasures? Will it have been our cars, our homes, our trophies, our businesses, our bank accounts, or degrees? I believe the greatest treasure that we can have is the lives of people who we've deposited our lives into. Jesus hints in this in Matthew 25, where it says that he separates the sheep and the goats. And he does so not on the basis of the worldly accomplishments of people, He does it rather on the basis of how they've invested into the lives of other people. Those who've cared, who've loved, who've chosen to be involved with others. He recognizes that. What about us? So as we conclude today, let me ask you, what one thing have you taken from today's message? It's not pointless. What is the one thing you're going to take and somehow apply in your life that may not only change you, but also might change others as well. Now, if you already are a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ, I would invite you, if you wish, to pray this prayer along with me. God, I am reminded there is a cost to being a follower of yours. And today I reaffirm my commitment to follow you, seeking to live out your word in my life demonstrating and sharing your love for others, that they too may come to experience the the joy of knowing Jesus. Please give me the strength to do that now and in the days to come. Amen. Perhaps you realize you're not yet at the point of putting what you've heard into action because you are not yet a follower of Jesus. But you want to know, you want to do so now perhaps, taking the next step on a faith journey. In that case, I would invite you to say after me the following prayer. God, I am reminded that there is a cost to become a follower of yours. And today I willingly take that next step, knowing there is a cost to my decision. I ask you to help me to become a committed follower of yours in every area of my life. Please give me the strength to do that now and in the days to come. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, I would ask you to text LIFE at 587-323-1199 and we would be happy to follow up with you with further information. If you have any questions regarding today's presentation, anything else for that matter, we would love to dialogue with you. Thanks for joining us. If you need anything, don't hesitate to contact us. You can find more information on our website, Facebook, or on YouTube and Instagram. We'll see you again soon.